It's in that name that we have gathered together today to worship. And we praise God for his son, Jesus. And I praise God for each and every one of you that is under the sound of my voice this morning. I believe that God has you in the right place at the right time. And I have been praying for you, and I have been praying for my heart this morning that this message would prick your heart, that it would touch your heart, that it would touch my heart. Many churches all over Kentucky will hear the same sermon subject today as the Kentucky Baptist Convention has asked the pastors to celebrate and to preach about the sanctity or the sacredness of life. This initiative is an attempt to educate and to encourage our churches to have the right perspective on the issue of abortion. And I'm sure statistically that this topic will be extremely personal as some of us have had abortions or have encouraged others to have abortions. And I pray that the Lord will give me the grace to communicate this message in a way that will lead you closer to Christ and further away from guilt and condemnation. I also pray that this sermon will lead others away from aborting or encouraging someone to abort. So again, my goal is not to condemn today, but prayerfully to be used by God to set free in order that we may save future babies from being aborted. In order to do this today, we are going to, uh, or not going to come from one particular passage in the Bible. We are going to do what's called a topical sermon. We are going to look at the Bible as a whole and see exactly what the Bible has to say about abortion. Today's sermon title is Abortion and the Bible. Abortion and the Bible. If you have your Bibles with me, just uh, raise them in the air and just repeat after me. This is my Bible. I speak to God through prayer and praise. God speaks to me primarily through his word. Let us pray. Gracious Father, we thank you for we know that it is in the name of Jesus that we stand. It is in your son's name that we have victory. It is through your son that we receive purpose and clarity. And we thank you for your word. We thank you that your word speaks directly to life's issues, to everyday life's issues. We thank you that your word is a mirror. We thank you that your word also is medicine. We thank you that your word is our compass that your word gives us hope. We thank you that you did not leave us to, to, to have to wonder what you think about the world and what you think about issues and what you think about us, but that your word has spoken clearly and told us exactly what you think. Thank you, Father, for giving us salvation, for giving us a special revelation. Thank you, Jesus. Father, I pray that you would minister today through me, that you would allow my words to be your words, my mouth to be your mouth, that you, Father God, would minister to every single heart on the issue that we speak of today. If you don't speak through me, Father, there is no hope for us this morning through this message. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Today's sermon, entitled once again, is The Bible and Abortion. 
according to an article that I read on a website uh, called albermoller.com. Last year, drivers in Metro Atlanta were introduced to a shocking billboard that read, Black children are an endangered species. The message was made public by the Minority Outreach for Georgia Right to Life organization. The organization's director is Katherine Davis, and she has a message that she is adamant about getting out. Katherine refuses to ignore the statistics surrounding abortion, and more specifically, abortion and blacks. She, according to uh, according to the Center of Disease Control, 57.4% of abortions performed in Georgia in 2006 were performed on African American women. But blacks only made up 30% of the population. Now nationally, the statistics are similar as 37% of the abortions performed were on African American women while blacks only make up 13% of the population. Davis reported to the LA Times that research shows that over 18,870,000 black children have been aborted since Roe versus Wade in 1973. 18,700,000. She noted, that if this number wasn't so staggering high, so overwhelmingly high, that blacks would make up close to 20% of the population now. Now, I could go on here and harp about this uh, being systematic oppression. I could attack Planned Parenthood, which is the most popular and powerful organization for abortion, and its founder, Margaret Sanger, for targeting blacks for abortion. I could quote some racist comments made by the founder and go into detail about how their clinics are heavily represented in minority areas. And I believe that I will be justified in doing so as statistics would, would back me up and evidence would back me up. And this is common knowledge. But I won't go that way because abortion is not just an attack on blacks and the black community. Abortion is a global issue. It is an attack on the dignity of humanity, and more so, it is an attack by Satan and his demonic forces on God himself, on God's glory. Now, America prides herself on being seen as humanitarian. We, we pride ourselves on being a nation that helps other countries that are in need. And we even uh, try to reach out to other countries. And, and I think we do a good job reaching out to people in our own country compared to other countries. We pride ourselves on this humanitarian perspective or, or lifestyle. But America is hypocritical in that it allows on average nearly a million and a half abortions a year. There is a holocaust of sorts going on right here in our own backyards. Now, I'm sure that someone is thinking or has believed that abortion is not wrong. And I don't believe that because you have held that view that you're not a Christian. I believe that some genuine Christians don't have the proper view of abortion because they never thought about what the Bible has to say about the issue. The body of Christ has not done a great job over the last four decades on talking about current issues and issues that matter. We have not done a, a, a great job in teaching about what the Bible says about abortion. Now, the word abortion does not appear in the Bible. However, the Bible does teach against its practice, and its principle. There are five affirmations that I want to go through with you this morning that will help the church to have the right perspective about abortion. 
with this being our first sermon about the issue, I don't want to assume that you stand where the Bible or where I stand on the issue. So I want the Bible today to speak for itself on the issue for you. I think that it is important to note that these affirmations that we are going to go through today are going to build on one another. Five affirmations that the Bible teach that will help us as a Christian community to have the right perspective about abortion. Affirmation number one. Affirmation number one. What is legal is not always right. What is legal is not always right. Abortion has not always been legal in the U.S. Up until the 1960s, most Americans held to the proper view on the sacredness of life. And that all changed in, in the 1960s with a sexual revolution and as a result of the feminist movement's propaganda. Now, one of the main goals of the feminist movement was to free women from the perceived burden of having an unwanted child. Abortion became legal in 1973 by the Supreme Court of the United States of America in a case called Roe versus Wade. I encourage you to look up the official rulings of this case that went through in 1973. Now in, in July of 1976, the court extended its original decision to affirm two more, what I think is outrageous points on the first decision. And the first extension of Roe versus Wade, uh, the, of the Roe versus Wade decision was this. It said that abortion may be performed on minor daughters without the knowledge or consent of parents. So in 1976, they made a change to the original rule and said that abortions may be performed on minor daughters without the consent of the parents. Now let's think about this. Your daughter, 15-year-old daughter, needs a permission, needs your permission to go on a field trip. Your 15-year-old daughter needs your permission to have any other invasive procedure done. But your 15-year-old daughter does not need your decision to have the child that she is carrying in her womb put, put to death. That's the first amendment that they made, the first change that they made. Secondly, they said that women, whether married or unmarried, may obtain abortions without the knowledge or consent of the baby's father. Now, as a Christian, it is important that we understand that just because something is a law, it doesn't mean that we have to support it or obey it. The baby generation, you all know this to be true. Many of you and many of your parents suffered through what was called the Jim Crow laws, which was basically legalized racism. We know that the Jim Crow laws, though it was legal, it was not right. There are countless examples of Jews and Christians justifiably not obeying the laws of the land. Now, how do we determine what laws we can and cannot obey? Turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 5, verse 27 through 30. Acts chapter 5, verse 27 through 30. This is going to help us to determine what laws we should and should not obey. In this text, the apostles have been arrested for preaching the gospel, and they were set free by God and then arrested again. Now they stand before authorities, and I want you to notice the response that they have for the authorities. And the word reads, And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, 
And the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charge you not to teach in this name. Yet, here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But listen to the response of the apostles. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than man. You see that? We must obey God rather than man. As Christians, we don't obey the laws of the land that will cause us to sin against the commandments of God in Scripture. When a law goes against the God of the Bible, we stand firm against the laws. We stand firm like Daniel and his friends against the king's edict. We refuse to bow to any other law and to any other gods. Now, we should note that when we disagree with authorities and when we stand on our convictions from scriptures, we do it in a loving manner. We, we do it in a graceful manner. So what we have established here in this point is that a woman may legally have the right to abort a child, but just because it's her legal right, it does not mean that it's right. So affirmation number one is what is legal is not always right. Say that with me. What is legal? All right, amen. Affirmation number two, all life comes from God. Affirmation number two, all life comes from God. Psalms 127 verse 3 reads, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. It is important that we understand that God is the one that gives life. From Adam until now. When a man and a woman come together and have sexual intercourse and the woman becomes pregnant, it is because God was behind her becoming pregnant. A lot of things have to go right for a child to be conceived. In fact, the process of conception is, is quite miraculous. We have to teach our children at a young age that babies are conceived because God allowed conception to take place. Throughout the scriptures, when a woman is having a child, it is because God opened the woman's womb. And when a woman is not with a child, it is said throughout the scripture it is because God closed the woman's womb. Read Genesis chapter 17, verse 16. In Genesis chapter 21, verse 2, when you go home. God is the one who caused the father's sperm to reach the mother's eggs. God is the one who caused the egg to become fertile. He is the one who caused the 23 chromosomes from the father and the 23 chromosomes from the mother to come together and, of course, in some cases more. It's God. When a child is conceived, it is a divine doing, a miraculous intervention. It is God's doing, not man's. When a woman finds out that she is pregnant, whether she is saved or unsaved, married or unmarried, it is God who calls that baby to become. Now, this does not mean that God was pleased with the process that the child came through. God is never pleased with sin, but nonetheless, God calls. He allowed his law that he set in motion of seed, time, and harvest to manifest. A baby is never, never a mistake in the eyes of God. A baby is never, never a mistake in the eyes of God. We may not have planned for the child, but God knows that that, 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 that he planned for the child. Jeremiah chapter 1 verse 5 says that God knew each of us before we were placed in our mother's womb. 
The psalm that was read earlier today by the minister, Psalm 139, teaches us that God knits the child together while the child is in the mother's womb. Every single one of us were fearfully and wonderfully made. I don't care what your parents or what someone else has told you. I don't care if someone deemed you a mistake. You are not a mistake. You were made by the creator of the universe intentionally. And he made you in dignity and fearfully. Affirmation number one is that what is legal is not always right. Affirmation number two is that life comes from who? Affirmation number three. All humans are created in the image of God. Say that with me. All humans. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, in the midst of the creation narrative, God decided to make man. And listen to what the Bible says about this process. Then God said, let us make man in our image. After our likeness. And in verse 27, the author of Genesis notes, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created male and female. Now there's a lot of debate about what it means to be created in the image of God. And I believe that it's safe to say that to be created in the image of God means that man was created in a way that most resembles God. Of all the creatures of the earth, God took the most time to make man. He scooped up some of the earth and made man from the dust. He imparted his ruha, his breath into them to resemble him in order that man would be holistic. God fashioned us to to reflect him as a spiritual, a rational, and an emotional being, which means that of all the creatures of the earth, human beings are to be treated with the most dignity and love. Every human being deserves to be treated with dignity and love because every human being reflects his creator. In Washington, there is a memorial built to honor the 16th president of the United States, Abraham Lincoln. And at the memorial, there sits a larger-than-life statue of old Honest Abe. And how do you think most people, how do you think most people will respond, most patriotic Americans would respond, If one day it was reported on the news that that statue had been vandalized, that that statue had been picked and torn apart, if someone spray painted and disrespected that statue, I imagine that to many patriotic Americans that 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 would be an issue. That would be a big deal. Why? Because... Because of the way or because of of who the statue resembles and reflects. It is an insult to the creators of that statue who put their precious time and their precious thought into that statue. It is an insult to Abraham Lincoln as his image is is being torn apart. So it is with human beings. When we are insulted, when we are mistreated, when we are murdered, It is an insult to the creator. It is an insult to God himself because he is the one who calls and called us to life. There's a violation not just against that person, not just against that baby, but it's a violation against God and God's glory. In Genesis chapter 9 verse 6, we see how serious God feels about his creation when he communicates to earth's earliest inhabitants a strict rule to be lived by in order that they would understand the importance or the sanctity of life. The scripture reads, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. Whoever sheds the blood of man, 
by man shall his blood be shed. Why? For God made man in his own image. See, God created this law from the beginning for our, the earliest community that said that when a man was murdered, that whoever murdered that man was to be put to death by the community. And he did this in order that the earliest communities, in order that they would see the sacredness of life, that that person, no matter how much they got on our nerves, no matter how uncomfortable they made us feel at times, deserved to be treated with dignity. They did not deserve to be murdered in wrath. Affirmation number one is what is legal is not always right. Affirmation number two, all life comes from God. And affirmation number three, human beings are created in the image of God. Affirmation number four, a child is a person at conception. A child is a person at conception. Say that after me. A child is a person. One of the biggest thrusts and lies behind abortion is that a child is not a child at conception. As Christians, we must acknowledge a child as a child at conception. We cannot get into differentiating between an a embryo and a fetus and a child. Pastor theologian John MacArthur had a huge impact in helping me to think through this in a sermon that he preached in 1992. And in the sermon, he pointed out that the Bible never differentiates between a baby inside the womb at any stage and a baby outside of the womb. Turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 1 quickly and look at verses 39 through 42. Luke chapter 1, verse 39 through 42. Now these verses narrate the time that Mary visited her cousin Elizabeth. Now both are pregnant with a child. And Elizabeth is pregnant with who? And Mary is pregnant with who? Now, when Mary greets Elizabeth, the child that is in Elizabeth leaps for joy. Now, what's interesting about this verse, about verse 44, is that Elizabeth uses the term baby to describe the child in her womb. And the word that, that Luke records that Elizabeth uses in the Greek is the word briefos. Now, this is what's important and interesting, and this is what we must see. In Luke chapter 2, verse 16, and in verse 18, the same word in Greek is used to describe Jesus as a baby laying in the manger. The same word that was used to describe John the Baptist when he was in his mother's womb is used to describe Jesus when he is outside of the womb. The writer does not use another term. John the Baptist wasn't a blob. The Bible didn't use an impersonal name to describe the baby like embryo or fetus. The Bible did not separate the two. The Bible was not, does not use a term that tries to dehumanize the child. And if we are using the term embryo or fetus as Christians, let us make sure that people understand that we still mean baby. Here's some interesting facts about babies in the womb that are quoted from various places, but my main source is abortionfacts.com, a reliable inter internet source. Uh, from day one, the foundation for the genetic makeup of the child begins. The foundations of the brain the spinal cord and the nervous system are laid in the first 18 to 25 days of a baby's life. By day 21, the heart begins to faintly beat and it gains strength day by day. A day later, the eyes begin to develop. The earliest stages of the ears begin to become present. By day 26 and day 27, the lungs have begun to form. 
Now, there, of course, are more statistics or stats to be quoted, but I think that you get the point. And my point is this. A baby is a baby right away. God begins to use the mother's body to shape the baby in a way that he chooses at conception. In Pastor John Piper's book entitled Brothers We Are Not Professionals, a, a book that is written to, to pastors, to encourage pastors to blow the trumpet for the unborn. In his book, he has a chapter that shares, that he, and in that chapter, he shares a letter that he wrote to the Minneapolis Star Tribune. And in the letter, Piper confronts the newspaper for its hypocrisies in supporting a law that was passed which approved the unconditional permission to terminate the life of a 24-week-old baby that is in their mother's womb. He noted that on the same day that that law was passed and approved, that a nearby hospital was taking care of a premature baby that was outside, of course, outside of the mother's womb that was 24 weeks old. He said, think about this. A law protects a 24-week-old, protects a 24-week-old murder of a child or abortion. But if the mother who gave birth to a 24-week-old uh, that was premature was to walk into that hospital room and strangle that 24-week-old that is outside of her womb, she will be charged with murder. We would demonize her. We demonize women on the news all the time when we find out that they left her some uh, their child somewhere to die or they strangled their child. It's interesting, isn't it? That leads us to our fifth and our final affirmation, which is this. Affirmation number five. Aborting a child is murder. Aborting a child is murder. There's no less murderous for a person to drown a young child in water than it is for a doctor to kill a child who lies in the placenta of the mother. Turn your Bibles to Exodus chapter 21, verse 22. I appreciate your patience and us going through this subject this morning. Exodus. Chapter 21, verse 22. The Bible reads, When men strive together and hit a pregnant woman so that her children comes out, but there is no harm. The one who hit her shall surely be found, as the woman's husband shall impose on him. And he shall pay as the judge determined. But if there is harm, then you shall pay a life for a life. There it is in black and white. The Lord told Israel, if a pregnant woman is beat and her child dies, then the person responsible is to be treated in the same way that a murderer was treated. And that is to be put to death. Why? Why? Because a child in the mother's womb is a human being. And aborting it or murdering it is murder. I challenge you to go home and to research the horrific process of abortion. Research and learn about the torture that an innocent unborn child goes through when they are put to death. I will be embarrassed to mention it in front of such great company, but I will assure you of this. It can easily be argued that a mass murder on death row is treated more kindly. You know, one of the most popular arguments for murdering an unborn child is that abortion should be allowed 
because it is the right of the mother. The only case in which that should be argued is in a case where both the child and mother's physical life is on the line. A healthy woman who is impregnated as a result of her choosing to have sexual intercourse with a man should not be allowed to kill a child because she has the right to. The right of the child to live outweighs the right of the mother's comfort. This argument of a mother's right would not work any other time after the child is born. Now, I know we joke with our children and say, I took you in this world and I'll take you out. <laughs> but you take them out, you're going to pay. <laughs> the issue here is love and compassion. The greatest second commandment is to love your neighbor as yourself. Is there a closer neighbor to a mother than their unborn child? Would a woman willfully allow someone to torture her or to kill her? I don't think so. I don't think so. So there are many other justifications, but they all fail, fall short of, of biblical reasons. Some say that abortion is justified because it saves a woman who has been raped or who has uh, incurred incest. And in those cases, the Lord is sympathetic. The Lord does have compassion. That is a horrific thing that happens. I'm sympathetic. I have compassion. I believe that that woman needs to be counseled and loved and cherished. But those cases only make up 2% of all abortion cases. Actually, less than 2%. More like 1.5%. And we can't justify legalizing the law of abortion for 1.5%. And also, as Christians, and as a Christian community, it is important that we, that we come around that woman and that we love that woman. It's important that we, we show that woman that, that we are there with her. And that even in bad things, God can bring out good. And that if you can't bear to, to raise that child, knowing about how that child came about, you do have the option of adoption. Only God gives life. Bottom line is this. The Bible teaches that abortion is murder. These five affirmations are biblical and important to know. Just because abortion is not legal, it doesn't mean that it is right. The life of that child is from God. And that child is created in the image of God for God's glory and purpose. They were created to be treated with dignity and pride, not as a problem. Children are people at conception, and aborting an unborn child at any stage is murder. We must believe this, and we must affirm it. We must stand strong, just as the Jews in the Bible stood strong during their culture. When, when people were offering their children up to a, a false and, and idolatrous God named Molech, we must stand firm on this issue just as the early church stood firm on it. And we must teach against this practice. Now it's important that we recognize that this issue of abortion is the church's issue. So let's briefly look at how the church should respond to this issue. Number one, the church and this church should respond for, by repenting. By repenting should respond by repenting. We should respond by repenting because we have ignored this issue for whatever reasons, whether it be fear or ignorance. We respond by repenting. Number two, we must resolve to respond to this issue in a God-exalting manner. What do I mean when I say a God-exalting manner? In the 68th division of Psalm, David wrote, God is the father of the fatherless and the protector of the widows. God is the father of the fatherless and the protector of the widows. This means that God fights and protects those who cannot fight and protect themselves. And I don't believe that anyone is more defenseless than a child resting in his mother's womb. 
We must speak up for those children in these walls and outside of these walls. Now, if you open your bulletins, you will see that there is a brochure there about how we each can respond individually. And I want to encourage you to take that bulletin home and to read it. Thirdly, we must create, this is important, we must create a gospel-saturated atmosphere for those whose sin has been made public. We must create a gospel-saturated atmosphere for those whose sins have been made public. When a person's sin is made public, we must respond to that person, not by pointing the finger and gossiping about them or gossiping about their family, but we must seek to restore them with the spirit of gentleness, with the spirit of gentleness. When a person sins, I'm, I hate to say it, but as the church, instead of doing what the Bible says and can lovingly confronting that person on their sin, Gently calling that person out from their sin in order to restore them. A lot of times we point the finger. We gossip behind closed doors. We gossip in a barbershop or in the beauty salon. And that is not the way that the Lord tells us to do it. And what's funny is many times the people who are pointing the finger was in the exact same situation 20 years ago. Many of our children weren't born in wedlock. But when we get saved, we just forget. And we become hypocritical, pharisaical. That's not what a Christian is. Our church should have an atmosphere that is different from the world's. When a woman becomes pregnant or a man impregnates a woman outside of marriage union, it is our duty as his brother and sister in Christ to restore them to unhindered fellowship with Christ and with the church. We do that by sitting down with the persons one-on-one -on -one and getting them to acknowledge the sin of fornication and repent from it. We lovingly help them to not fall into the same trap again. We communicate to the leaders of the church that it has been done and that then the church reaches out to her or to him in love and helps meet their needs. We must continue to create this atmosphere of transparency and love. If not, our daughters and our sons, our youth members will abort babies and encourage others to abort babies because of shame. Listen, if you are a young person, if you are a young man or a young woman and you are considering aborting an unborn child today, I beg you not to do it. If the reason you are considering taking the child's life is because of the shame or the fear of man, which is the fear of what people might say about you, I implore you and I beg you to fear God over man. I have learned that people are going to talk about you and point the finger at you whether you're perfect or imperfect, whether you're pregnant or impregnant or not pregnant. Fear God, impregnant. Fear God. The scripture declares in Matthew chapter 10, verse 10 through 28, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both the soul and body in hell, and that is God. If you are considering abortion because you are afraid what people will say or what your parents will say, come and talk to me. Let me talk to you about repentance. Let me help you to, to, to restore that, that re relationship with Christ and to love Christ. I will inform you. I will, I will let you know that Christ has forgiven you if you repent. And I will personally go with you to talk to whoever you want to talk to. Another reason... You may consider abortion is because you may say that 
I'm not ready for a child. Maybe it's financially, maybe it's emotionally. Whatever the reason is, I want you to consider the logic of that statement. It doesn't work in any other situation to say that I'm going to murder a person because they're inconvenient to me. That's absurd. Your child is a person, whether you're ready or not. Remember two things. Number one, you can do all things through Christ who gives you strength. Number two, adoption is an option. It is not dishonorable to put a child up for adoption. It is better that that child live with parents who want and who desire a child than that child to suffer a horrific death. Prayerfully, the parents will be Christian and that child will come to love the Lord and have a great life in the Lord. In the Lord. Finally, I would like to say this to those who have committed abortions in the past. Simply seek the Lord. Seek the Lord through repentance. Confess your premarital, extramarital, or even intermarital <laughs> intercourse and abortion. And make provisions not to do it again. Ask the Lord to cleanse you from it and restore you in the right heart. Second, remember that the Bible speaks about sins. And it speaks about us being forgiven of sin. In 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, the Bible promises us that if we confess our sins, that God is faithful and just to forgive us from our sins and to cleanse us from our unrighteousness. When we repent and when we say to the Lord, not just I'm sorry and go about our life, but when we think about what we've done and when we tell the Lord and we, that we are turning from our sins and we make the provisions in our life to turn from our sins, the Bible says that God forgives us, that those sins are no longer remembered. I want you to remember. I want you to remember a man by the name of Moses, a man who was used to free Israel out of bondage from Egypt, a man that we talk about and that Israel sang about. I want you to know this about Moses. Before God used Moses to deliver Israel out of Egypt, Moses was a murderer. Moses took his hands and put a man to death. But after God came and revealed himself to Moses. And after Moses repented in the presence of a holy God. God forgave Moses. And used Moses' life like he has used very few people. Moses aborted a man. But Moses was forgiven and used for God's glory. I want you to remember a man by the name of David, King David, a man who wrote many of the, the verses and many of the songs that we read in Psalms, a, a man that is declared righteous, a man that had the very heart of God. And I want you to know this about David. David committed murder. David murdered a man that was well-respected by the name of Uriah. And Uriah was not only David's friend, but Uriah was a hero. And David murdered this man in order that he would be able to, to continue to sleep with his wife and cover up their sins. But I want you to know this about David, that after David repented, after David cried out to the Lord in Psalms 51, Psalms 32, God, God forgave David. And, and after David fell, we see that God used David in a mighty way. Some of the psalms that are written, some of our favorite psalms was written after David murdered a man. God forgives. God forgives. That sin is not on you if you turn. That guilt and that condemnation is a false guilt and a false condemnation if you repent and trust the Lord. But most importantly, I want you to remember a man by the name of Jesus. I want you to remember that this man by the name of Jesus is also God. This, this, this God came down and put on human flesh. He was born of a virgin. 
He lived a, a sinless life for 33 years. He, he, he traveled a road known as the Via Della Rosa. He went up on a hill called Golgotha, Calvary. He, was, he had real nails put into his real palms and real nails put into his real feet. He had a real crown thrust upon his real head. He had a, a real whip put to his real back in order that we would experience real love and real forgiveness. He was put in a real tomb. Borrowed tomb. And he really rose on the third day and ascended into heaven in order that you would know a real love. And the best thing about that is he promised that he is coming back. And when he's coming back, he's coming back for ex-murderers. He's coming back for ex-liars. He's coming back from ex-thieves. He's coming back for ex-adulterers. God is married to the ex Trust and believe. Let us pray. Father, I thank you for this audience. I pray, Lord, that this word has went into their hearts. I thank you, Father God, for giving us the courage to listen and to speak about an issue that has been ignored for so long. Father, we are the church. And you've called us not to run away from difficult subjects, not to run away from, from topics that will make us uncomfortable, but to speak about it, to speak about what you have to say about it. Help us, Father God, to continue to have conversation about this. Help us to ask questions if we don't understand or agree with something. Most of all, Lord, help us to become a gospel-saturated community, a community that does not point the finger at another person when they sin or fall short, but a community who calls that person to repentance and gentleness in order that that person may be restored in an unhindered fellowship with the Holy Spirit, with you and with the believers. Please, God, minister to those today who may be tempted to fall into guilt. Help them, Father God, to see the gospel. Help them, Father God, to reach out to a leader or to reach out to someone who, who believes the Bible and someone who can minister them away from that guilt and remind them that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Lord, I believe that you use our mistakes. You can use our sins of the past to help shape us to be people who bring you glory. We pray that you would do this in Jesus' name. There is someone here who does not have a